Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to another episode of BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. I'm Todd Kinney. National Relationship Director with BDO's Private Equity Practice based here in New York City. I'm excited to have three guests with me today, all from BDO Canada, and they're going to talk about the latest trends and issues impacting Canadian dealmaking. First, let me introduce Bruno Supa, who is the Managing Partner for BDO Canada's Greater Toronto Area Group. A native of Toronto, Bruno has 15 years of experience in domestic and international business with a concentration on M&A. Bruno, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, good to have you. Next, I'll introduce Ryan Farkas. Ryan is a corporate finance partner in BDO's Toronto uh, office. Ryan has successfully closed transactions in various industries, including manufacturing, consumer business, construction, engineering, automotive, and information technology. Is there anything you don't do, Ryan? Any sectors? <laughs> I think you got them all there. Quite the laundry list. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. And last but not least, we've got Jamie Wendell, who's a partner with and, and the National Service Line Leader for Transaction Services, uh, also in uh, BDO's Toronto office. Jamie specializes in transaction support, buy side and sell side due diligence, and uh, general deal advisory. And he certainly has uh, significant experience in identifying and resolving critical deal issues. So, Jamie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Looking forward to it. Awesome. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump into it. Uh, Ryan, I'm going to uh, start with you. It's a bit of a, uh, a two-parter. Uh, first, what's your outlook on uh, U.S. foreign investment into Canada? And second, the overall confidence around inbound capital flow, given the dynamics around geopolitical uncertainty? No, it's a, it's a good question, Todd, and I think it's, uh, you know, really relevant to, to the time. So, you know, the foreign direct investment in within a Canadian context, uh, you know, I'd say over the last number of years has largely been driven by, um, you know, capital into the oil patch out, out in, in Western Canada. And, and naturally, over the last, call it, uh, you know, 36 months, um, that cycle's been, you know, down. Um, and so what, what I think we saw through 2016 and 17 was a bit of an exodus of capital, largely driven by you know, money out of those sectors. Uh, 2018 was a bit of a bounce back. So there was about you know, $51 billion, which was a, a three-year high. And, and I think what, what we saw was, you know, as you went through that down, pat, down cycle within the oil patch, uh, you know, the government started putting in you know, various incentives and, and capital started to come into non-energy sectors has really been the focus. And so whether that's um, you know, whether that's you know the emerging emergence of, of technology and, and related sectors or or manufacturing, I think you know the government's done a nice job. And, and geopolitically, you know, Canada is viewed as a as a bit of a safe harbor for capital, both um, you know internationally as well as as well as from the U.S. Of course, which is you know our like our largest trading partner, um, and we certainly see a ton of that um, you know within the context of the deals that we do. Uh, I think you know on the on the diligence side, you know, in and around. You know, half of uh, of Jamie's practice is is uh, you know inbound U.S. capital, uh, so you know tons of tons of opportunity there. I think with respect to uh, the geopolitical piece again, um, you know, there's a bit of uncertainty. So that from a tree, free trade perspective, I mean, there's a an agreement that's out there that is uh, you know is waiting to be ratified. 
Um, and, and, you know, there's a bit of still, you know, we've been in an uncertain environment around that and we probably continue to be, even though it's been negotiated, uh, needs to still be able to get through the house within, you know, all three countries. And so, you know, I think, um, there's a bit of a, a status quo there, but it, you know, I think from our perspective, it hasn't necessarily impacted, uh, deal-making to this point. All right. Terrific. That's, uh, some, some really good insight as we, as we, as we get deeper into things, Bruno. I'm going to uh, kick it over to you. Um, as you oversee a variety of uh, business sectors, uh, I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts uh, with our listeners around some of the uh, key industries for PE in Canada that uh, you think are leading the global market. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll build on a couple of uh, foreign direct investment themes that Ryan Ryan was outlining. Uh, the Canadian government has organized itself around five super clusters, really focused on tech innovation in these areas. So I'll, I'll lay out the five of them. The first being digital technology. So think virtual reality, augmented reality, data, data quantum computing, really to solve productivity, health, and sustainability challenges. The second is protein industry. So this is an agricultural play focused on plant uh, genomics and processing. Uh, the third being advanced manufacturing, and, and Ryan mentioned uh, the manufacturing space. So here we're really looking at developing next-gen manufacturing companies uh, through new technologies like robotics and 3D printing. Fourth is AI-powered supply chains. And I'll, I'll come back to this one in just a second and the general theme of, of AI. And the final one being oceans. So uh, think marine renewable energies, fisheries, and aquaculture. The Canadian government is expecting to infuse about $2 billion uh, into the economy via these sectors and grow GDP by about $50 billion over the next 10 years. So from a private equity perspective, I think leaning in and understanding these sectors, uh, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. From an AI perspective, Canada is really world leading. AI institutions uh, that we have in Canada, specifically the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute in Edmonton, uh, the Montreal Institute for Learning Algorithms, or MULA in Montreal, and the Vector Institute in Toronto. We're conducting world-leading research in machine and, and deep learning and AI. Toronto in particular is home to, uh, to, to Jeffrey Hinton, who's the, uh, who's the godfather, effectively, of, of, of modern-day AI. Uh, he splits his time 50-50 between the University of Toronto and Google, where he leads AI for, for Google. You can trace uh, a lot of his students and people who have worked under him and, and trained under him to the heads of, of the AI departments in, in the largest tech companies in the world. And, and so I think it's a little known fact, but AI, really the government is, is positioning AI to be poised as Canada's biggest export. So this is a, it's really a fantastic area that, that I think everyone should be paying attention to because, you know, we talk about disruption, this is at the bleeding edge of it. And if I can offer up a recommendation uh, for a great book to read, there's a book that was written by A.J. Agrawal, Joshua Gans and Avi Goldfarb. So the book is called Prediction Machines, uh, written from an economist's perspective. Uh, I think uh, it's a fantastic book that really unpacks uh, the world of AI and uh, and puts it into terms that I think um, most can understand. Awesome. Might be the uh, the first time we've had someone plug a book on the podcast. So <laughs> exciting stuff. Uh, overall, it sounds like you're pretty bullish, Bruno. So I appreciate the uh, commentary. Um, Let's kind of broadly go to trade and tariffs. Uh, Ryan, uh, we'll throw this one to you. Uh, do you think that the uh, continuing uncertainty around the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement is uh, having any um, impact on PE capital that's being deployed? 
Yeah, thanks, Todd. So, I, I mean, as we mentioned a couple of minutes ago, I think the, the you know we've been in an environment of, of uncertainty for for a few years now, as uh, as NAFTA, or, you know, the, the predecessor agreement, um, you know, was approaching, um, you know, kind of the the point where they knew it was going to be renegotiated, um, and we kind of remain there, despite the fact that a, a deal is uh, in principle is in place, it still needs to be ratified by by all three countries involved, uh, and specifically within Canada, I think you know the, the a couple of things are are going to create an issue in terms of where we stand currently. One is uh, there is some some pretty punitive duties on imports of uh, into the U.S. of Canadian aluminum and steel, um, and and that's that's hugely impactful within the, the Canadian context. The um, the auto sector in, in southwestern Ontario, which you know again um, as we approach a federal election in Canada in next in next fall, is going to become a, a contentious issue to ensure that um, all parties are kind of taking a stand that. Uh, that preserves kind of that political capital around that and and drawing a hard line there you know i think that you know based on the, the context around um the, the positions of, of the us on the issue is you know something that we there hasn't necessarily been resolution to and so i think that you know there we we remain in a in an area of uncertainty because it, you know it doesn't look like um you know there's a high degree of uh, of certainty that it's going to be ratified um and but you know from a deal making perspective i think when you're in that extended period of, of uncertainty Eventually, people still need to deploy capital. Um, people, unless the the issue is so pervasive and kind of impacting, you know, that specific asset in a direct way, um, which we've seen occasionally. If it was, you know, Chinese steel, and that was kind of right at the forefront at that point. But outside of that, more broadly, I think people are assessing the risks, um, taking them into context in terms of that specific investment, and then marching on and you know deploying the capital and taking advantage of of the opportunity and. You know, Canada is uh, is open for business for from a U.S. private equity perspective, and and we continue to feel like it'll be that way moving forward. Yeah, certainly uh, agree with you. Maybe Jamie, I'll I'll throw the China topic to you. Uh, wondering if you would uh, agree with that that really the the ongoing issues around the China tariffs are having uh, a, a real effect on cross border deals with Canada. Yeah, thanks, Todd. So I think the uh, you know the interesting thing about this is that what we're seeing is. Um, you know, maybe just back it up a little bit from in terms of the actual deal. But what we're seeing is a lot of uh, an increase in cross-border activity in U.S. companies redirecting their shipments of Chinese originating goods or European originating goods directly to the Canadian market instead of transshipping maybe through the U.S. as was done historically. With the additional 25 or 10 percent additional tariffs on Chinese originating goods and, and the threat of, of uh, you know, in, increased tariffs, in the European market, it's making it more cost-effective now to you know directly ship, sell, or set up business in Canada to source the uh, to source the Canadian market. All this to say that you know it's creating more uncertainty sort of in the uh, North American marketplace. And while there may be opportunities there in the future, I don't think we've seen yet that directly impact the uh, the volume of cross-border deals. Thanks. Well, certainly, Jamie, and uh, the the points Ryan made. I think these are uh, these are really just things we need to you know keep keep top of mind. Now we're going to take a moment for our coffee break with Kevin Caden, who is a partner in BDO's transaction advisory services practice, and he's based here in New York City. Let's hear Kevin's insights. Thanks, Dodd. Cross-border M&A has become increasingly prevalent for the U.S. middle market and is a key component of many companies' strategic growth initiative. Successfully executing cross-border M&A strategies offers many benefits, which include geographic footprint expansion, 
opening new distribution channels, and leveraging low-cost environments, to name a few. BDO's Transaction Advisory Service Group is dedicated to assisting clients with various types of M&A-related due diligence services. In addition to the traditional financial due diligence, we provide tax, operational, and IT due diligence. We also provide employee compensation benefit due diligence and perform management background checks. As a member firm of BDO International, our due diligence services extend beyond the U.S. Following the stabilization of the U.S.-Canada exchange rates in 2015, we have experienced a significant increase in cross-border transactions with Canada. These, like most other cross-border engagements, present certain unique but subtle due diligence considerations. Beyond the more traditional financial risks of acquiring a domestic business, a cross-border transaction introduces additional risk related to currency, tax, culture, and regulatory issues, to name a few. Currency is often a significant consideration in cross-border transactions. Since 2016, this risk has been reduced as the U.S.-Canadian exchange rate has been relatively stable. Despite this stability, it is important to understand and evaluate a target entity on a constant currency basis. Floating exchange rates can often mask true economic performance of a business. A constant currency analysis eliminates the effects of fluctuations when assessing the performance of a Canadian target or any foreign target for that matter. We have performed this analysis of risk for many foreign targets. At first glance, tax laws may seem tedious. Getting blindsided by federal or provincial Canadian tax regulations and incentives can be costly and may even kill a deal. We believe an investor should be carefully advised on the impact of Canadian tax regulations and how to best address it through tax planning and structuring. To achieve this, it's important to have the boots on the ground knowledge of taxes. And this includes both Canadian and U.S. tax advisors. We work very closely with our BDO Canada tax team to address these risks. When performing cross-border due diligence, it's important to understand and respect certain cultural challenges. Besides the obvious language challenge, it is not unusual to encounter unusual financial policies, procedures, and reporting. And the due diligence quickly gets off track without the appropriate level of local knowledge. In Canada, we have successfully addressed these challenges, specifically in the province of Quebec, by working closely with our Montreal-based team. Last but not least, the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act of 1977 is the most widely enforced anti-corruption law. It is the first to hold both companies and individuals criminally and civilly responsible for corruption offenses committed abroad. It is very important to investigate the target's compliance with the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and similar anti-bribery and anti-money laundering regulations. BDO brings us the experts to the engagement to assess this risk and guide our clients. Working with our colleagues from BDO Canada, we have addressed these unique transaction risks and conducted successful due diligence engagements for many of our clients. Appreciate your thoughts, Kevin. Very interesting. And now let's rejoin Ryan, Bruno, and Jamie from the BDO Canada team. Uh, I guess we'll broadly kind of go into industry outlook and, 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 and Bruno, I'll, I'll throw this one to you. What are some of the factors making the real estate market in Canada attractive to PE? Yeah, so real estate's interesting. Uh, I think it's sort of not, not, an easy, not an easy answer. It's relatively complex and tricky these days. We're definitely seeing the larger Canadian cities uh, having been on a tear over the last five to 10 years from a real estate valuation perspective. So we're in this really strange market where you know the, the, the insiders say that either it's uh, a bubble or potentially could continue to skyrocket. 
we've, we've experienced a lot of volatility in the capital markets in 2018, uh, and there's some, been some semblance of stability this year. But you know, we're, we're, if we look at and dissect the, the markets across Canada, or at least the large ones, looking at Vancouver and Toronto, we're seeing a bit of growth slowdown, still growing, but growth slowdown. And then looking east and eyes to east, Montreal is, 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 is really, really picking up. We talked about uh, a little bit about the Canadian-U.S.-Mexico uh, trade deal. It's allowed for some deferred foreign investment in real estate to come back into Canada. Uh, But chatting again with some real estate insiders, I hear that valuations and cap rates are expected to remain relatively stable. Canada is a a safe haven. It's a good place to diversify investments, uh, which is really a main driver, I think, of money looking for real estate within within Canada. Uh, But foreign investors are, we often see that they're reluctant to take on riskier construction projects and development uh, projects. Uh, and they prefer already built projects. They have a tough time finding projects where they can outbid domestic players, uh, usually represented from a capital perspective by the large Canadian institutional funds, uh, pension funds. Uh, and we find that they become uh, become successful in acquiring property really mostly when they partner up and team up with Canadian investors. Uh, the PE world, in, in addition, I, there's been uh, there's been a some focus and attention placed on the concept of the BlackRock model. I mean, it's interesting and, and amazing to see that BlackRock has a, I believe it's $136 billion real estate portfolio. And, and that, that's bigger than the market value of the largest S&P investment trust, which is, which is unbelievable. Wow. You're seeing Carlisle, KKR spin up uh, similar funds focused on real estate. And, and the stat that I, I read as well is that PE funds uh, as a group have greater than $900 billion real estate investments. So I think I think that's another point or model that people are paying attention to that could be applicable. Good stuff. Some pretty uh, eye-opening stats there. Appreciate that, Bruno. Uh, Ryan, maybe we'll turn to you for, for the economy. Um, according to BDO's 2019 PE survey, 89% of the PE fund managers expect a prolonged downturn in the next two years. So I guess, Ryan, the question is, do you see private equity firms in Canada preparing for an economic slowdown? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think you'd have to you'd have to be silly not to in some ways, Todd. I, I think that when we've been on kind of the bull run that we've been on over the last you know approaching a decade now, um, I think that most uh, funds, and that's you know when I think when we say funds in Canada, we're really talking about you know a pretty thin market in terms of, from a private equity perspective, and so we're also you know I, I would build into that U.S. funds that are looking at assets in Canada because you know from a a deal perspective, that's a, a big chunk of the community that we're interacting with on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, and, and that group, I think the way that they're approaching it right now is, is they're pricing it in. Um, it doesn't mean they're not aggressively going after assets. And I think that you know one of the byproducts of, of that that we see is when it's a, an industry or a subsector that is more counter-cyclical or resilient through a cycle. I um, mean, I think, you know, springs to mind things like, you know, food, healthcare, um, we're actually seeing people kind of lean in and, and, you know, continue to be extremely aggressive in those sectors. But even things where you might see a little cyclicality, whether it's the auto sector, uh, um, but people are just, I think, you know, approaching deals with eyes wide open that, you know, when you've been moving in a direction for 10 years, the graph doesn't go up forever. Right, right. True. Uh Bruno, care to uh, chime in on the on the same topic? Yeah, I just I think that there's uh, f- from a um, an economic standpoint or a macro factor. I think there there are some conflicting data points or anecdotes around you know what's kind of going on from a Canadian economic perspective. We, we see that uh, GDP growth targets have, have come down to lower than inflationary levels. Uh, we see banks uh, banks missing earnings targets, uh, so that that's you know that's sort of unique and potentially indicative of of some uh, some downturn or correction. 
Uh, we see consumer debt at an all-time high, and, and that's validated by uh, we have a, a large north of the border, a large consumer insolvency practice. So that, that group is busier than it, than it has been in years. But, but contradicting that or, or contra to that is uh, the fact that we have record level low unemployment. We've got a low interest rate, high capital environment. So, you know, there, there's, it's really interesting to kind of see that the, the feeling or the sentiment certainly suggests that there's, there's some correction looming in the horizon. But, you know, I, I don't, I don't, the question as always is when and, and, uh, and how big. Right. 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 No predictions. Ryan. Well, <laughs> always dangerous to make predictions, but yeah, you know, I think that the last thing I'd say that I think is, you know, really uh, that you need to think about when you're ever you're looking at a deal in Canada or, or an asset in Canada is it's a very regional, um, you know, there's a lot of differentiation regionally within the country. And so, you know, to give you a prime example, British Columbia, which is on the West Coast, is the fastest growing province economically right now. Well, you know, British Columbia is right beside Alberta. Which is which is that you know as we talked about at the at the outset you know based on the oil patch and the energy sector has been through a bit of a trough over the last number of years and so you know when you look at aggregated data and Bruno mentioned kind of conflicting messages around you know kind of where we're going a big chunk of what plays into that is is really the you know the uniqueness of the the various regional economies and so you have BC you have the energy sector in, in kind of the middle of the country and then of course the kind of the economic hub. Um, you know, up Toronto, which, you know, whether it's technology and other types of industries that are driving that. And so, you know, the, the story is not uniform from coast to coast. There's definitely some nuances depending on, on the region where the asset is. Awesome. Well, you guys have certainly given our, uh, our listeners some, uh, some, some indicators and things to think about. Jamie, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think the other important thing to think about, too, is the, uh, is the U.S.-Canadian exchange rate. And that really drives a lot of business. Um, the a lot of Canadian businesses that are of, of any size do a significant amount of work in the U.S., and, and typically that involves, uh, you know, invoicing in, in U.S. dollars and to the lesser extent probably purchasing in U.S. dollars. I would say where we are today is at probably historical, more normal levels of, of uh, foreign exchange rates. You know, four or five years ago, we were at a, a position where we were, you know, greater than the U.S. dollar in terms of, uh, in terms of what that value was, but that was... Uh, I would say a very short period of time and probably a blip in what was and what is normal. So you know it's a uh, it's a good boost to especially manufacturing firms that are doing business across the border um, in terms of you know a boost to their to their earnings. Great, appreciate you adding that. Uh, well, Jamie, I'd be I, I'd be remiss with not uh, throwing out a, a deal diligence question since I have Canada's finest here with me today. Um, maybe you could tell our listeners what steps companies should take given increased focus on policies and and governance during uh, deal due diligence. Yeah, so we're seeing the marketplace a really heightened level of risk around you know, a, you know maybe some taboo words, but harassment and, and, and accusations of out in the marketplace. More and more, we're seeing these things hit the uh, you know hit the news wires or, or, or social media, and what we're seeing is that companies or private equity. You know, obviously, they don't want to see these things in their in their uh, in their investments. You know, whether it's in Canada or anywhere else, for that matter. So there's a lot more um, there's a lot more diligence being done around reputational diligence on both the company, on the individual uh, management teams that the um, that they're investing in, and who you know who are who they are banking on to really drive the growth in their business. So you know, really digging deep and, and understanding sort of. You know, not just the financial and tax and the operational aspects 
of the company itself, but you know, a little bit of more background on who we're getting involved with. I would say there's a bit of a challenge there, though, is because especially in the mid-market, we don't necessarily have um, a corporate structure that has a lot of policies and procedures in places for these types of things to be collected and and um, you know communicated outwards. So, you know, I, I look at that as an opportunity in some ways for for private equity who come into Canada and or into the the, the, the mid market, I guess, more in general, to say there's an opportunity to you know to improve these um, you know improve the corporate structure, improve the you know not just the corporate structure around you know reporting of of uh, sort of this level of, 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 of detail, but, you know, more broadly across the, uh, across the organization to improve that and, and to, you know, drive, and that'll help drive growth in the future. Great. Lots of uh, good insight there for our listeners. This brings us to the end of another uh, BDO Private Equity Perspectives podcast. Bruno, Jamie, and Ryan, have to thank you so much for uh, making the trip down in New York and uh, joining the podcast today. Hopefully it was uh, uh, time well spent. I know our, our listeners will certainly enjoy your insights. Thanks, sir. Well, thanks, thanks for having us. us. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, to our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Perspectives podcast. For more information on how BDO supports private equity sponsors, funds, and their portfolio companies with a full spectrum of accounting, tax, and advisory services, please visit us at BDO.com. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of Private Equity Perspectives. Perspectives.